I'd like to welcome everybody today. My name is Diane King, and I will be your moderator today. Just would remind the audience that this session is being recorded, and it is available on the website, www.sacpod.ca. And remind you also that the cost of today's session, not just your lunch, but the session, is $10, and somebody will be collecting that, please, at each table. I would like to acknowledge the University of Lethbridge as a partner of, of SACPAW and thank Country Kitchen for the wonderful meal we will have today. And remind everyone here that SACPAW is a not-for-profit society and is dependent upon contributions, and so we encourage, and memberships, encourage your membership in the association. The format for today will be as usual. We'll begin now with an introduction of our speaker and the topic, and then our speaker will speak for approximately 20, 25 minutes. We will break then for lunch, and after about, about 10 to 1 or so, we will resume for a question and answer period. And I'll talk to that as soon as that time has arrived. So without any further ado, I would like to say that while most would say that, that Canadian politics is plays, plagued by voter apathy and disinterest, the prospect of a coalition government in November of 2008 between the Liberal, NDP, and Bloc engaged Canadians with a passion rarely seen in our history. What became equally obvious was the lack of understanding or knowledge of both Canadian history and constitutional law. Our speaker today is Senator Tommy Banks, and our topic is coalition. Which coalition? Senator Banks will speak about the concept and status of a political coalition assuming power from a government that has lost the confidence of the House of Commons. This is not a new invention. It is perfectly in order in our parliamentary system and has, in fact, been suggested twice in the past five years by a political coalition. Do you know which opposition leaders led both of those? Senator Banks will question the role of Parliament also in the governance of Canada with a particular emphasis on matters of public spending and framework legislation. Hardly needing an introduction, I would like to just give you a bit of information about Senator Tommy Banks. After an illustrious career of 50 years in the field of music as a composer, pianist, broadcaster, conductor, and the list goes on and on. In 2000, Prime Minister Chrétien appointed Tommy Banks to the Senate of Canada. During the administration of the Right Honourable Brian Mulroney, Tommy Banks was appointed for two consecutive terms to the Board of Canada Council for the Arts and to a further term as a policy advisor to the Board. He was also appointed by the Minister of Finance, the Honourable Michael Wilson, to two consecutive terms as a, sectoral uh, as a member of a sectoral advisory group on international trade that advised the government during negotiations for the North American Free Trade Agreement. Under the Right Honourable Joe Clark, he served as Alberta spokesman in the campaign for the national referendum on, the, on constitutional amendment, and with Professor Kath Kathleen Mahoney, he argued the yes side, opposing Stephen Harper and Mel Hertig on the referendum's televised debate. As I've said, in, in 2000, the Right Honorable Jean Chrétien um, summoned Tommy Banks to the Senate of Canada. Please join me in a very warm welcome of Senator Tommy Banks. 
Thank you, Diane. Diane almost made me sound like a politician. In, 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 uh, oh, good idea. Thank you. In the Mikado, the, 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 the prince who is courting uh, a lovely soprano who, who's the, one of the stars of a traveling theatrical company <clears throat> wants to ensure that, he, that she loves him for himself rather than because he's the prince. So he disguises himself as a member of the orchestra of the traveling theatrical company. As he disguises himself as the second trombone. And after he has uh, succeeded in winning the hand of the lovely soprano, he says, in order to clear the air, you know, I am not really a second trombone. And she replies, I knew that. Directly I heard you play. <laughs> I am not really a politician, and you will know that directly you hear me speak. I will speak as quickly as I can because I think the best part of today will be the, the Q&A, so I'll try to get there as early as I can. Uh, and as, as Diane has said, I'm, I, I'm going to speak about coalitions because the board of SACPA asked that somebody come here and speak about coalitions, and so I'm happy to do that. But I'm also going to speak about one of the proper roles of Parliament, which I think that Parliament is largely abdicating or has abdicated. Coalition governments. Well, let's think a little bit about how our parliamentary system works and why it works. Ours, uh, nationally and in every province in Canada, is, a, is based on the Westminster form of parliament. And that derives from the fact that in 1215 at Runnymede, some people who were being taxed and, and got together and said to the king, they were the nobles at the time, you can no longer tax us at your whim. You can no longer tax us whatever you like, and you can no longer spend that money on whatever you like. You, first, you must first obtain our permission to do that. You must convince us that we need to be taxed in that amount, and, that, and, that, and, that, and you must convince us of the rightness in the way that you're going to spend that money. You must parlay with us, parlement. That's where it came from. It was first just the nobles who said that. They became the lords in Westminster Parliamentary model. And then later, centuries later, the commons, the commoners came, the House of Commons. And Parliament now has three parts. The crown, which is very much a part of Parliament. The crown, who appointed me, it wasn't, it wasn't, Mr. Kretchen, who appointed me, he recommended my appointment, but I was appointed by the Governor General, as were all senators so far. I'll come back and talk about that another day. <laughs> the Crown, the Lords in London, which is on which the Senate in Canada is based, and the Commons, the House of Commons, those are the three parts of Parliament. The only one of those places in which confidence is required, in which the government must, in which the crown, because the, the government is the crown, the government represents the, is the, minist, the, the ministry of the crown, and it must retain the confidence of parliament in order to remain the government, and that only exists in the House of Commons. So if it comes down to it, in the first instance, parliament and government in our form is about money. It's about how much money you collect 
and it's about how you spend it. That's what government really is. We also make laws from time to time about other things and, and, and recommend other things as well, but it's really about money. And in order to collect and spend money, the government must maintain the confidence of Parliament, and that means that they must have more votes in the House of Commons than the combined opposition. When that confidence is lost, and confidence motions include certain automatic confidence motions, and budgets are automatically confidence motions, when that confidence is lost, the Crown, part of Parliament, embodied in this country by the Governor-General, has they have more options than this, but they have two main options. They can either drop an election writ when a government has lost confidence, which is the most common thing, or, alternatively, the Crown can look around and find out whether anybody else in Parliament is capable of forming a government. And if two parties in Parliament convince the Crown that they have found sufficient agreement between themselves on matters of sufficient importance that they together can be seen to form a unit in Parliament which holds the largest number of seats, then the option of the Crown to ask that coalition to form a government is a perfectly legitimate and not often used, but, but, but not, also not never used, uh, convenience in uh, Westminster Parliaments the world over. We have only had one in Canada. It was in 1917, Sir Robert Borden's government that was formed, not as a result of a minority government or having lost confidence, but because of the emergencies having to do with the First World War. But there have been other uh, coalition governments in Westminster parliaments in our country in various of the provinces. Some of them have lasted matters of days. Some of them have lasted many years. Some of them have been good some of them have been bad, as with all governments. You never know until, uh, until they've had a chance to govern, and then we either elect them for a second term or throw them out. In the event that the opposition parties, that two or more of the opposition parties do find that they would together constitute a sufficiently large number of seats in the House of Commons to form a government, they could, those parties could, lobby in effect, the Governor-General, to ask that he or she consider asking somebody else in Parliament to form a government rather than calling an election. How might they go about that? Well, one of the ways be, might be that they would write a letter to the Governor-General. I will read you a copy of such a letter. It says, Excellency, as leaders of the opposition parties... We are well aware that, given the minority government, you could be asked by the Prime Minister to dissolve Parliament at any time should the House of Commons fail to support some part of the government's program. This is the nice language that is used in Parliament, which means you can read between the lines. We respectfully point out that the opposition parties, who together constitute a majority in the House, have been in close consultation. We believe that, should a request for dissolution arise, this should give you cause 
as constitutional practice has determined, to consult the opposition leaders and consider all of your options before exercising your constitutional authority. That's a very nice way of saying, if we defeat the government, consider not calling an election. Consider asking us whether we, the opposition parties, can form a government. A coalition government at the national level in this country, as I said, has only happened once. But we've had many minority governments in which the scenario that I have just outlined could have happened. The most recent three governments in Canada have been minority governments. Minority governments, in order to survive, need to invoke and to involve and to practice a different political dynamic than a majority government does for obvious reasons. A majority government is going to be able to obtain in the House of Commons pretty well all the results that it wants for legislation and for spending. But a minority government needs to have dialogue and concession and and cooperation in a way that a majority government doesn't. And those things are almost never translated into a coalition. There's only been that one federal coalition government in Canada, Robert Borden's in 1917. It was called the Union Government, but that was not a result of a minority having been defeated. But provincially in this country, in Westminster-based parliaments, Ontario had a coalition government from 1919 to 1923, and again from 1985 to 1987. Manitoba had a coalition government that lasted from 1922 until 1943, 21 years of coalition government. B.C. had a coalition government that lasted from 1941 to 1952. Saskatchewan had coalition government that lasted from 1929 to 1934, and then again from 1999 to 2003. You will remember that. Roy Romano didn't achieve a majority. He obtained the services of two liberal members in his cabinet. Boom, coalition. In our first past-the-post system, Majority governments can almost always rely on getting their way in the House of Commons, and the official opposition's role is usually to keep governments to account and to hold it accountable. But their main job, aside from that, is to convince the electorate that, their, that the merits of their agenda are stronger than those of the sitting government. And since 1921 in this country, we have always had more than two and sometimes as many as five parties. And this prospect of minority government and therefore theoretically, of a coalition, becomes more and more likely as that situation continues to obtain. Minority governments are not bad. Lots of controversial legislation has been passed by minority governments, and some of it in recent times. The minor parties usually provide the initial support in a minority government for the government, and the two major parties rarely have never, rarely sustain each other, except in circumstances in which they're simply not prepared, as has been the case for the last few years, to go to an election. The first minority government we had in Canada was in 1920. It was Mackenzie King's uh, minority government. They survived by finding two votes among the Progressive Party, another protest party that had its beginnings in, the, in our province, as, as they all have. Uh, he entered into discussion with the progressives that were they were then led by Mr. Thomas Crerar. And they didn't get into a formal coalition, but they had an understanding. Uh, he offered Mr. Crerar a seat at the cabinet table. Mr. Crerar declined to accept it. Uh, and shortly thereafter, the, the progressives broke apart. Some of them became, who had previously been liberals, uh, went back to the Liberal Party. 
Others of them joined the then Conservative Party, which is why it is now called the, or was for a long time called, the Progressive Conservative Party. The Trudeau government in 1972 was a loose, informal coalition. It had the tacit, unsigned support of both the NDP and the Social Credit at the time. That government was defeated by a non-confidence, that coalition government was defeated by a non-confidence motion on the budget, and in the ensuing election it won a majority. So collection, uh, coalitions are a legitimate, although unusual, alternative to elections. And that it is that kind of coalition that was proposed last fall. It was the result largely of matters having to do with, surprise, money. Had to do with money. You will have heard about the proposal to, uh, in the fiscal update that was presented by the government in the last fall, of doing away with public support of political parties. And again, I'll come back and talk about that another time as well. But the main thing that broke the camel's back on that day was the fact that that fiscal update, which was the closest thing you could get to a budget coming back after a parliamentary break, simply ignored a train that was coming down the track towards us at 90 miles an hour. The fiscal problem, the financial problem, the, the economic problem that was facing the world, and everybody knew it, but that government, that fiscal update said, everything's fine, the fundamentals of our economy are strong, we're not going to do anything, we're not going to do any, uh, any economic uh, stimulus because we don't need to. Everybody else in the country, and I'm sure all of you, if you read any newspapers, knew that that wasn't so, and that was the thing that caused the coalition to be formed. It was a coalition, it must, it must be said, between two political parties, not three. It was a coalition of the Liberal and NDP parties who had elicited the, and, and obtained the written support of the Bloc Québécois not to vote against a coalition government that would be formed by them on matters of confidence only until June 30th, 2010 but that the bloc would vote against the government on anything else that it chose in, 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 the, in that time. That was what was proposed last fall. Was it a good idea? Would it have worked? We'll never know. So much for coalitions, because there won't be one for a long time. The government realized, in the face of the distinct possibility that on the following Monday it was going to be defeated, that it should perhaps take a more reasoned view of things. And it did. So it, 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 the coalition served a very good purpose in that respect. The one thing that I have learned in my relatively short nine years in Parliament is, and it's a very steep learning curve. It's not even steep. It's perpendicular. When, when Like most of my colleagues, we were not previously politicians. That, that Parliament works in strange ways. And I'm going to switch subjects now a little bit, just so we can talk about this in the Q&A as well. Have I still got time, Diane? Parliament has, in one important respect, lost its way. Remember that I posited earlier, and I, th I hope that I have convinced you, that Parliament really is about money. Government really is about money. It's how you collect it and how you spend it. From whom do you collect it, at what rate, and on what will you spend it? Thinking back to 1215 and Runnymede, those nobles made the point to, that we are going to subject you, Crown, you ministers of the Crown, to scrutiny 
in how you collect and how you spend that money. That is Parliament's first job. Sorry, it's among Parliament's first jobs. And it has increasingly, in this country, failed to do that. To do what the nobles started in 1215. To examine what the government proposes and to know what the government is doing, and including all of the possible unintended consequences, before blindly approving government expenditures. Because it's all about the money. Neither House of Parliament is now doing that job well, and it has done it less well in, in, in tiny incremental little steps over the past several decades. The Commons has failed to do it increasingly because the Commons has become so utterly partisan so clearly divisible along party lines that, that, that members of the House of Commons have very little role anymore when it comes to money. The Senate has abdicated its responsibility in that respect for almost the same reason. It has become more partisan than it once was. When Herb Sparrow, who was a senator from Saskatchewan who retired three years ago, took me into his office shortly after I had been there, he showed me the, 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 the roles of meetings that were held with the Western Caucus. Not the Liberal Caucus, not the Conservative Caucus, but the Western Senate Caucus. Because in, in Canada, the Caucus is set up, the, the, the Senate is set up to be regionally equal. We don't have provincial equality, we have regional equality. 24 senators from the Maritimes, 24 from Quebec, 24 from Ontario, 24 from the West. And it is supposed, that's if you read the constitutional debates, that is why the Senate was set up. The Senate, in that form, with regional equality, to offset the majority in a, in a, in a representative parliament, in an elected parliament, was a condition precedent to confederation. Because the smaller provinces realized that if they didn't have that regional counterbalance to the tyranny of the majority that the majority would simply decide how this country is run. And if we didn't have that, theoretically, Ontario would simply decide what's going to happen in Canada. That would be the end of the question. Nobody else would count, because that's where, for the moment, the majority resides. Parliament, if it's going to do its job, must regain that control. And mainly that control exists in the House of Commons. But the Senate has it as well. Successive governments of both stripes, it doesn't make any difference whether they were conservatives or liberals, have succeeded over time with the acquiescence and, and, and complicity of an excellent and expert bureaucracy in proposing budget expenditures and, and contriving their approval by parliament in ways which will avoid that scrutiny. Because it is inconvenient. Not because they're doing anything wrong, but I can tell you that when Parliament does do its job and does apply a glaring scrutiny on budgets, it always finds a little mistake. So if in two days of study of a budget we find four mistakes, one assumes that in four days you might find eight mistakes, etc., 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 but a false sense of urgency is in, has been introduced over time by successive governments, which has, I can't say caused Parliament, but, which, but, but to which Parliament has, 
has has submerged its responsibility in that respect, and it's not doing its job. It's easy to understand why that is so. Parliamentary democracy in our form is an extremely inefficient form of government. As Winston Churchill said, it's the worst possible form of government, except for all the others. (laughs) The most efficient form of government is totalitarian government. A dictatorship is extremely efficient. You don't have to ask anybody anything. You don't have to convince anybody of anything. You don't have to show anybody anything. You just do it. But that's not the way our system is supposed to work. And I hope that you will try to hold parliamentarians to account that they should hold the government to account for the ways in which it is spending money because right now we do not do that. Unless it does that, Parliament, all three parts of it, will become less and less relevant and power will gravitate more and more and more and more to the ministry, to the crown, to the ministers of the crown. And that is what was got away from in 1215. We're moving ever inexorably closer back to that pre-1215 situation. As a final parting shot... And when when it comes to the Senate, I have to admit that I am partisan. You've heard the phrase rubber stamp applied to the Senate. Well, in the first year that I went to the Senate, the Senate made 86 amendments to government bills that came to it from the House of Commons. They must then be returned to the House of Commons. The House of Commons approved 85 of them. And that has been the pattern ever since I've been there, in the nine years that I've been there. Those things don't make the news. You don't hear about those things. The Senate is the quality control department of Parliament. We hang out the dents and scratches. We look at the unintended possible consequences down the line and fix them. And we do that often and frequently, but you don't hear about that. When it comes to money, though, the real rubber stamp and I hope my colleagues there will forgive me saying this, is the Commons. The Commons is the only confidence house in Parliament. It is the only place in which people are elected to hold the government, to the the ministers of the Crown to account. Only the Commons really has the moral authority to hold the government to account on money matters. The Senate has never defeated a budget, and if it did, it wouldn't bring the government down because the Senate is not a confidence house. But in the end, holding the government to account for its expenditures is the business of all parliamentarians. And I'm sad to say that my colleagues and I and our predecessors for several decades have not been meeting that responsibility. We have not, in that respect, been doing our jobs very well. Now, I'm going to fill in the blanks that I left out of the letter that I read to you first about coalition to return to that question. This letter was dated September the 16th, 2004. It is signed by the Honorable Stephen Harper, leader of the opposition, by Gilles Duceppe, leader of the Bloc Québécois, and by Jack Layton, leader of the New Democratic Party. So the idea of a coalition is not anathema to any party in the House of Commons. Thank you very much.